Hello and welcome to another episode of The Unbreakable. I'm your host Luke Cunningham and today we're set to explore the realms of leadership. Joining us is a figure who embodies the very essence of resilience and leadership excellence, Langley Sharp, MBE. Langley's story is a remarkable odyssey of courage and command. As a commanding officer in the highly esteemed parachute regiment, he has navigated the complexities of leadership in some of the most challenging environments imaginable. His journey extends beyond the battlefield. Langley has been the leader of the Center for Army Leadership, is the acclaimed author of The Habit of Excellence, Why British Army Leadership Works, and is now the founder of Frontier Leadership. In this episode, Langley opens up about the defining moments of his career, from commanding elite forces to shaping the future of army leadership. He'll take us through the intricate tapestry of leading with unwavering integrity, making tough choices, and the profound impact of inspiring others to reach new heights. But our conversation goes beyond traditional leadership. We dive into the subtleties of followership, understanding the art of support and teamwork, elements as vital as leadership itself. Langley's rich experiences illuminate the crucial balance in leadership and the timeless principles of serve to lead, demonstrating how these concepts are true in both military and civilian realms. Whether you're at the helm of a team, spearheading a project, or in a personal quest for excellence, this episode is laden with deep insights and transformative wisdom. Get ready to be inspired and empowered as we embark on this journey with Langley Sharp. Brace yourselves for an episode that promises to challenge and change your perspectives on leadership and life, as we welcome Langley Sharp to The Unbreakable. Langley, welcome to The Unbreakable podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Luke. Great to be with you. Absolutely. Um, and as we jump into this, um, first thing I want to highlight is an incredibly impressive resume that speaks to a wide range of experiences. Would you be kind enough to take us through your career journey, starting with what actually influenced your decision to join the military? Um, why the parachute regiment in particular? And of course, what led you to a path of becoming uh, an officer? Uh, good questions. I'll have to... Um try and draw on my distant memory there. I think I was sort of talked to into, into all of those really. Um, I, uh, I, so I'm not from a military family. Uh, my father, uh, my dad's a, a cleaner, recently retired, he had his own cleaning company. My mum's a, a psychotherapist, has been for many years. Uh, so uh, other than sort of grandparents and great uncles in the war, uh, no real military connection. But I've always, I've always been interested in the outdoors, um, in, in team sports. I always loved sports as a kid. And, um, and being, yeah, being part of that sort of competitive environment, I guess. So I, I had an interest in, in the military growing up in the army. Um, I did a bit of cadets as well, but I was at university and I remember going on a, a, a cadet expedition or cadet, uh, event. I think it was a, a two a weekend long, uh, trip and we were cold and wet and it was miserable. And I came back and I said to the, uh, to the OC, I said, I'm not joining the army. This is ridiculous. I'm going to, I'm going to leave. <laughs> I leave the cadets and he said, you know, just, just stay for the summer and uh, see how you get on with the, uh, the summer camp and a bit of adventure training. And, uh, and I, I stuck with it and, uh, and, and actually loved it for the next two or three years. But even when I finished university, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I, I applied to join the reserves. 
and I thought that would uh, give me a little bit of interest. And I failed uh, the reserve selection, uh, officer selection. Uh, they said it wasn't good enough. I was actually failed by a, a parachute regiment captain who I uh, met later when I was a captain in the regulars. And uh, uh, and then a friend of mine who was also in the reserves, in the, in, in the paras in the reserves, and he said, uh, you know, I think you've got the right sort of character and attributes to to give it a go in the regular army. So you should really go for it. So I went I went to do my uh, officer selection, and uh, and they said yes, and I, I then joined Sanders at the age of I think twenty three, and it kind of just snowballed from there. I just I just loved it. I just um, I, I only joined for three to five years, and I, I thought I'd get out and get a proper job, and there I was twenty three years later, and still um, still loving it and leaving leaving on a high. Uh, the parachute regiment. I guess I've always wanted. To to be part of again of an organisation that's that's uh, high performing as we understand it now. I probably didn't use that language back in the day, but I always again I was a sort of quite competitive as a kid and I love sports and I thought well if, if I'm going to give this a go, why not go with uh, what I deemed at the time to be and, and rather by I still do you know um, one of the best regiments out there and um, and as I say my friend was in the in the parachute regiment and he kind of gave me that that impetus really. And um, I, I actually did a selection weekend, which he put me on behind my back. He said, I'll book you on this uh, weekend, look at life with the powers. And I went along. And leadership itself, um, Sanders notorious uh, within the leadership community, both both in the corporate and military capacity. Were you aware at this time um, the significance of leadership or was, it, or was Sanders just a means to an end to get to the, the final goal, which was you know a, a, an officer in the parachute regiment? Um, I, I guess uh, subconsciously, you know, I was aware that leadership was at the core of, you know, our responsibilities as uh, as officers, albeit it's an all-rank sport leadership, um, as, as the army recognizes far more now. Um, so I don't think it was, I want to be a leader and therefore, you know, off, off I go to Sanders, but it was always there. It was always talked about. And of course, it's a core tenant of, of, uh, of being an officer. You're expected not just be in a position of command and, um, make decisions, give direction as, as may be required, but it's about, it's about leading. And obviously there's a difference and, you know, we can get into that, but, um, uh, but but as you say, it's it's seen as a centre of excellence, global centre of excellence for leadership, and, and and much of what they they do there is, is beyond uh, developing a, a professional capability. Um, mm-hmm. They 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 develop leaders and leadership, and uh, and still those instill those um, you know those principles, those those uh, that foundational thinking that really sets you up for for, for life. But as with everything, you know, I often say that. You know, when you're being developed in any capacity, leadership being one, you learn through training and education. Education gives you the knowledge. Training puts that in in perspective. It's through experience you really develop. It's in the day to day. You know, so I guess my leadership journey started at Sanders, but it but it wasn't really honed as 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 you you'll know from your experience and many others. It's it's honed in the day to day, and uh, in in practice, if you like. So uh, it's a it's an ongoing journey, and I'm I'm still on that road. <laughs> Mm-hmm. learning every day yes yeah aren't we all and um the motto you know i was never a commissioned officer but there was something to be said around serve to lead i, I think that motto sits for for most people who are in a position to to serve others um and and i want to get back onto that uh, a little bit later but through your command through your time in the in the parachute regiment um Several challenging theatres, um, if I've done my research correctly, you served in Northern Ireland, Macedonia, which I'm sure was part of the Kosovo conflict, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I think uh, nine operational tours over the years and various sort of short-term bits and pieces here and there. So I guess fortunate in many ways that, you know, I joined as, as you share this experience through your time in the in the, in the British Army. You know, we, we, we joined and we served at a period of, of intense operations. And I guess to your your question about leadership and the development of my leadership, it was very much shaped by that operational experience, whether it be directly deployed or preparation, uh, preparing for, because obviously in the the early to mid, uh, sorry, the, the, in the 2000s, the first sort of 15 years of, uh, of this century, we were on operations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, primarily elsewhere as well, of course. But, um, and, and, the, and the whole, the whole army, the whole military um, uh, system was was geared towards those those two operations, and therefore everything we did, whether it would be, you know, back in mm. barracks uh, in, in in the staff environment and headquarters, or or, um, or of course on, uh, in regimental duty on the front line, then we were, you know, it was all about those operations. So we really had a a a, a, a core focus. Everything our minds were really focused on delivering uh, operations, which you know from your understanding, everyone's understanding of leadership. If you don't have that purpose, it's very difficult to cohere people together and, you know, take them forward in a certain direction. But we, you know, we certainly had, um, it was in the forefront of our mind that everything we were doing was, you know, had a tangible end state to it. And that was ultimately deployment mm-hmm. operations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And throughout those conflicts within, in amongst those theatres, uh, what would you say, was a particular moment or a particular situation that really felt the tested tested your leadership abilities to, to the max? Oh, there are many, many to be honest with you. But um, you know, I, I often talk about. So I guess my the, 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 the first time I realised I've got a lead here, <laughs> and it was when I met my platoon for the first time. Uh, I've told this story a few times actually, but um, it was quite seminal for me, and I guess it is for many people stepping into a leadership position for the first time. And um, and it, it was in Northern Ireland, so I was joining uh, two para. Uh, four months into a six-month operational tour to Northern Ireland, at the tail end of our commitment over there, and um, uh, I remember walking into the room. I, so I just finished Sanders for twelve months. I'd done P Company and my jumps courses, get into parachute regiment, done some other infantry training. So eighteen months of training, and I often say I was like an excited little puppy, you know, ready to command my first platoon. Here, here I go. And I remember walking into <laughs> walking into the uh, into this room in in a Skillin police station in in, in Fermanagh, Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, uh, it was it was a room about the size of a half about half a basketball court, and in that room was uh, thirty paratroopers were housed for um, six months, triple high bunk beds, and that was the, that was where they lived, uh, patrolling twice a day. And I walked in with Stu, the, the platoon commander I was taking over from, and he introduced me. You know, gentlemen, this is Second Lieutenant Sharp, your new platoon commander. And I stood there, and 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 thirty sets of eyes descended upon me, and uh, you know these seasoned paratroopers were staring at me, and you could just imagine what was going through their head. You know, who is this guy, and you know, is he going to be any good at his job? Is he going to be professional? Is he going to be one of us? Is he going to be part of the team? Um, and it goes back to your point about mm-hmm. serve to lead. You know, is he in it for us or is he in it for himself? And um, and 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 I guess in on reflection afterwards, I realised at that moment in time, you know, all this talk about the difference between command and leadership, and I was in command. So I had this sort of, you know, legal authority, if you like, over over the thirty men, as it was, all my old platoon in front of me, and the decisions I made and the actions I took, of course, I would be held accountable for. But indeed, the same for the actions that they took and decisions they made, and and yet I was also expected to lead. Mm-hmm. But I was in a position of 
I was expected to lead 30 people, all of whom had more experience than me. The youngest private soldier had four months of operational experience ahead of me. And, and, um, uh, my platoon sergeant, who was Mick Southall, was the youngest person to serve in the Falklands at 17. Yeah. So he'd been in the best part of 20, 20 wow. years, multiple years of uh, accumulated service on operations and the breadth in between. So, you know, I was staring at a, 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 a vastly experienced room. I was thinking, I need to lead these people as well as command them. And, um, and of course, you know, leadership is a social relationship. So it took time to develop the, that, those mm-hmm. connections with the people, uh, with, with the guys. And, uh, um, but so for me, you know, that was the first test, I guess, is, you know, how, how do I do this? I've done all the theory as you spoke about, you know, we've been taught about it at Sanders, but this is for real now. I've got to connect with these people and I've got to be able mm-hmm. to influence them. And the reality is that, you know, it's a, it's a team effort. You know, you don't stand in isolation of making all the decisions. And I, I, I drew on that experience. And unfortunately, uh, the, the commanders, I had the corporals, the Lance Corporal, you know, senior private soldiers, and obviously Mick, my platoon sergeant, were, were fantastic and supported me, guided me and helped me and nurtured me. And, um, you know, and uh, once I, my confidence and, and competence grew, then, 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 then I was off. But, um, uh, you know, that, that was smart. As I say, that's a sort of seminal experience for me about this is, this is leadership now. And, um, uh, and, and thereafter, you know, every operation had its moment of, of demanding that same, that same moment where you think I've got to step forward now and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I've got to make a decision. And ultimately that's what leaders do, isn't it? They make decisions. That's why they're there. They're, they're, mm-hmm. You know, they make decisions that they influence the team around and they, they pull them in, in a certain direction um, together. And, uh, and it's easy to do when, when things are nice and calm, but it's when the pressure is on is, uh, is when it really counts. And I guess, um, you know, a lot of that experience, both in, you know, peace and war, so to speak, uh, you know, there's plenty of examples where, you know, myself and people around me had to step up and lead. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and I can completely envisage uh, heading into that room with 30 eyeballs looking in and 30 mean eyeballs probably looking at you, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, too. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah so, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was quite a, it's quite a moment. Um, with, with the Sanders piece, going back to the serve to lead, um, something I found really significant and, and it's something I attempt to carry forward in, in, a, in a corporate capacity, but Fundamentally, the motto uh, British officer leadership since I think the late 1940s uh, when, that, yeah. when that was in grade. Uh, and it, I believe it holds just as much relevance today uh, th- than it did then. While slightly paradoxical in nature, mm. could you break down the motto and describe, you know, some actionable ways in which leaders, uh, whether military or in a corporate capacity, uh, can adopt as, as maybe as maybe like a, a guiding principle? Yeah, I mean, serve to lead. I think, yeah, you're right. In 1947, 48, uh, it was it was uh, brought on as Sanders' motto. Um, and I often, when I might, and we might get onto this, when I um, headed up the Central Army Leadership at the tail end of my career, you know, I, I used to say to people, it's the motto of Sanders, but it's it, it's and it's monopolised by the officer corps, but it's relevant to everyone, you know, all, all, every rank in the British Army, and and indeed, to your point, it's so transferable elsewhere. And really, um, it's, it you know simply states that as a as a leader, you're there to serve the needs of of the people you lead. Hence, the paradoxical uh, bit, you know, is it's. As many others far more intelligent than I have, have articulated, it's inverting the triangle of you know the, the, the typical perception of leadership being very hierarchical. People often getting that mixed up with mm-hmm. uh, with command and hierarchy, and perhaps the industrial way of leading of the leader at the top and his or her people beneath them. And it's turning that triangle on its head, and um, the leader looking up and serving serving those uh, that they, they lead. And I think it's just about 
in terms of practicality, it's, um, it's, it, go, it goes back to that point. You know, when I was stood there thinking, how am I going to, how am I going to lead these people? And it's about earning their trust and respect, and it's about building up that social relationship, that that's, that, that 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 connection. And there's different ways you earn trust and respect. You know, being good at your job and uh, you know trying hard, and you know, um, you know leaning on other people's experience and willing to listen and take advice and all those sort of good stuff. But ultimately, it's about caring for people. You know, making people mm-hmm. feel valued, demonstrating that you're you are in it for them. It's not it's not just about you. And um, and you genuinely care and want to do good by people. So, I think the first thing is is, is understanding your people. And it's a bit of a cliche, but you've got to know your people. Um, you know, if you're leading people, you've got to know them because we're all different. We've got strengths, weaknesses, biases, good days, bad days, and all that sort of business. So, it's got, you've got to know your people, and um, and then be very um, uh, deliberate and uh, 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 proactive in in supporting them and developing them. Um, and and the more that people feel that you're investing in them, the more they're going to respect you and then pay that back to you. So it's a reciprocal, it's a reciprocal thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? So and I, 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 I just think you've, that as leaders, you've got to, yeah, you've got to look out for your team. It's as simple as that. And that's why this is so transferable. And it's it's difficult to say, you know, how do people do it? Because everyone's different and everyone will do it in their, in their own way. But if you realize that this is not about you, it's about... It's about the people you're you're leading, yeah. the team you're leading, yeah. your organisation, and ultimately, collectively, it's about what you're there to deliver. What you, the outcome is, is is you're trying to achieve. And if you get over mm-hmm. that, and if you have the humility, and, and, and you know, let go of the ego a bit, um, which which stains too many people, um, then uh, you know, I, I think uh, you'll 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 get halfway to the serve to lead ethos. Then, as it relates to as it relates to the the serving component and, and building those relationships and, and making them feel that um, the people um, that that we serve feel recognised and and feel connected to us, uh, where does empathy play into that? Because I know those deposits of building relationship and understanding someone is certainly required in order to be able to lead uh, with, with empathy and compassion at times, which which is which is required. Yeah, I think again, empathy. It's just about putting yourself in other people's shoes, isn't it? To use the old cliche, it's just again, it's understanding people's position, and um, you know, if if you're going to understand your people and know your people, then you've got to try and see things from their perspective. And the more you can, the more the under, you understand them or where they're coming from, um, um, the, the, the better you'll be able to serve them. So I think it's just about realizing that actually, the way you see the world is not necessarily the way other people see the world. Um, we all come from, I mean, the British Army is a good example. I think it recruits from 47 different countries around the world and, and people from every different background, culturally, geographically, socioeconomically, however you define whatever metrics you look at. But it's a diverse group of people. And how do you bring them all, uh, all together? Um, and, and that's what the Army, I think, does very well. Gels people together with a sense of belonging and purpose, et cetera, et cetera. But um, the, the, the reality is that we don't all see the world in the same the same way through the same prism the same lens. That's that's you know that's mm-hmm. a statement of bleeding obvious in many ways. But and so I think empathy is critical for for leaders to be able to sort of take a step back and try to understand you know a a, a different perspective um, or the same perspective from a different angle. 
And um, mm-hmm. you know, if, if 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 you continuously see things through your lens, um, then then it's going to be it's going to be quite difficult to lead. And I think it's just about spending time with people as well. Going back to operations, you know that you know when you when you build up those bonds, obviously there's intense moments or moments of intensity in any uh, conflict situation that really bonds people together. But actually, the reality is, as you know yourself, ninety ninety five percent of your time is boredom. Um, it's hanging around. It's you know pulling staggers, they say in the US, yeah. or, or um, you know, just doing the mundane uh, uh, jobs, waiting for those moments of excitement. But that, those are the times when you you get around your men and women, you get around your teams, and 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 really know them. You know, sharing a brew with them, sitting them, uh, you know, in the in the canteen in the cookhouse. Um, you know, going going to see the guys and girls when they're on stag or on duty, or um, or in the gym, and it's those sort of uh, mm-hmm. th- those smaller moments when you actually get to know get to know your people, and you know, um, um, and and that plays back plays you know, really p- p- pays, pays back later on when it, when it matters most and you need to need to know you're making the right decisions for your people because then you intuitively know them and they know you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I appreciate, I appreciate that. And um, throughout your time of command, there was obviously a point in your career where, um, you know, the Army Center of Leadership was born. Can you kind of share with us the genesis of that and how you played into the inception and, and what looks like the execution of that? Yeah, sure. So the Center of Army Leadership is a relatively new uh, concept or construct, and it, it was born of a, uh, a leadership review that the Army or the head of the Army, as he was then, the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, um, instigated in 2015. And he was looking back and said, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are, are, are finished now for the British Army. We need to learn the lessons of our past, what we did right, what we did wrong. Uh, we also need to have a, a clear eye on the future. And there was lots of uh, restructuring going on uh, as the world and the geopolitical landscape was and obviously continues to change with different threats emerging or re-emerging, should I say. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and he rightly identified that you know, leadership sits at the heart of this. If we're going to have um, uh, an organization and a, and, a, and a capability that's going to be effective, it's going to learn from the past and be effective for the future, then, then we need good leaders at every, at every rank. And um, there was a number of recommendations that came out of that review, um, two of the most prominent ones being the establishment of a leadership center, a team that as we often used to say, did the thinking on behalf of the army about what leadership actually is, what it means to us, and um, you know, share our lessons with with other sectors and uh, and industries, and learn from them. Most importantly, and the other was to write uh, a doctrine. Um, you know, write down what leadership meant to the British Army. So the Army Leadership mm-hmm. Doctrine came in in 2016. The Centre Army Leadership. Sorry, yeah, uh, and Centre Army Leadership was born in 2017. Um, and uh, interesting on the second aspect that the fact that the, the army was 360 years old-ish at that point, and this was the first time they'd actually codified what leadership meant to it as an organisation. But having right. that as a conceptual foundation, you know, this is our philosophy, um, enabled us to professionalise the development of leaders and leadership. And that really was the, was the, the, the role of the Central Army Leadership was to be the catalyst for that. So I came in in 20, 2019, I think it was, after I, after I was a command officer. And um, I was there for two years. And I, I, I was very fortunate in the sense that I had a brilliant team. We had a, only a, a core team of six, but we grew that to with some reserves and volunteers to almost 20 over, over um, um, my time there. 
um, reservists, regulars, and civil servants, uh, critically, who, uh, who were brilliant on the research side, particularly. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and then obviously COVID kicked in not long after I got there, and we sort of saw that as a uh, an opportunity to both learn from others, but also support others because of the army's experience of dealing with crisis, if you like. Um, we did a bit of work right at the beginning with the NHS to support them in developing some leadership work for, for their for their many leaders that were uh, understandably under significant pressure. And off the back of that uh, work, we uh, produced a guide, a practitioner's guide, leading through crisis, a practitioner's guide, which got sort of um, pushed out, which was the first bit of um, work uh, that we did that then cascaded a series of other publications. Uh, we, we revised the doctrine um, the Army Leadership Doctrine, um, and uh, and then the book that um, uh, the Habit of Excellence was the the, the Army's authorised account of leadership that, that myself and the team um, spearheaded and, and project led by uh, Professor Lloyd Clark, the Director of Research there, uh, that we did during during that time. So um, it, it felt like a really exciting time to to try and. Um, I guess take advantage of of the position that the cow was in at that point, and and again learn from others, and, and try and distill some of our of our thinking for the benefit of uh, for the benefit of the organisation um, and other people. And the last thing I'd say was we also set up right towards the end of my time a project. We managed to secure ten million pounds to um, to g- generate what became known as Project Bramall, which was really about professionalising. The next stage of professionalising um, British Army leadership, and and that was really about focusing on the leader, and the premise being that mm-hmm. um, much of what the army was, had done, it, it understood what leadership meant. It was very good at developing leadership uh, in, in its broadest sense, but actually everyone's different, and everyone needs a slightly different journey. So it was about coherent the efforts across the whole of the army to try and try and sort of target the, the individual development um, much better and therefore clearly, um, you know, generating a better collective capability. So, and that work is ongoing um, and, and in, in far better hands now to take that forward. So it's exciting times. That was one of my questions, whether that, whether you book the habit of excellence, which is legitimately a genuinely, genuinely excellent leadership book. I think worthy of any barracks or, or, or boardroom, uh, the, the likes, but was that a, a personal private endeavor or was that an MOD um, release? Um, well, thank you first if you're, if you're going comments. And, and the first thing I say is, is, is um, I'm glad you, you said uh, the boardroom as well, because it's definitely a book for the wider readership. It's not just for a military audience. And, and I firmly believe that, you know, all the lessons that we've learned within the army over, over the sort of three plus centuries um, are absolutely transferable. But um, to, to your point, no, it was a, uh, it was actually the, 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 the genesis of the idea, as I say, was Professor Lloyd Clark. And, and Lloyd is a published author himself. He's written nine books. He's a military historian. And he, and it was his idea. And he said, actually, you know, we've got this doctrine now. So we've got an institutional position. We've got loads of experience uh, to draw on as, a, as, an, as an organization. Let's, let's pull that together and try and bring this doctrine to life um, and have something that we can then go to other organizations organizations to say, this is our view, this is our perspective, um, uh, and, and use that almost as a, uh, a platform for debate and discussion, again, to, to learn from other people. So that was the genesis of the, the idea, really. And then um, he pitched it to Penguin, and Penguin 
said yes straight away and and that that was it we're off then uh and it was genuine mm-hmm. team effort uh, you know i often say my my name's on the front cover but the fingerprints of many are, are on the inside and we had a great research mm-hmm. team um and uh, a great editor and yeah a great bunch of people that pull it, pulled it together so yeah we're very proud of it and, and rightly so i particularly like um the self-assessment the self-analysis piece the mm. framework of defining that um some of the experiences i've had um since leaving the military and and being in a a corporate platform is come across some incredible people um with some really sound attributes as it relates to performance um but i also see all too often a lack of self-awareness a lack of self-understanding then as kind of a butterfly effect effect on everything else that they're assessing as a as a result of you know everything not really being in sync um so i think that was i think that was a really significant piece. Um, uh, highly recommend. Um, it, it can come across with a cover that this and, and the title to some degree that this is focused on the military, but absolutely not. Um, there's there's a there's a significant amount for for anyone in a position of authority leadership to, to take away. Um, and, and great work for the team over there. Has there been any ideas to follow up on this? Is there a follow up to to, to um, this book? Um, not from an army's perspective that I'm aware of. Um, one of the things that has uh, fallen out of, of this and the revisal of the uh, re- revision of the doctrine was uh, a doctrine note on followership. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, so we included that for the first time in, in the revised doctrine and then sort of uh, expanded it a bit more in the book. And then um, I, I did a bit of work back with the team this year, actually, to write the, the followership doctrine notes, which uh, which is published this summer. So that's that, that's the only thing, to my knowledge, that uh, that has come out thus, thus far. Um, and uh, I, I have got my eye on a, 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 another proposal that I'm just penning together, which I'm hoping to get into in front of some publishers by the end of the year, looking at followership actually, and what that, what that actually means in practice is quite a bit of academic thought growing, uh, uh, academic, um, attention applied to, to, to followership as a concept. And, um, and I think not just within the military, but, but far broader, there's um, a lot of people with some great practical experience with that. So, uh, if, uh, if the right publishers <laughs> are willing to invest, then hopefully that will be a nice follow-up and, and, and sort of take on some of the themes of, of the habit of excellence. As it relates to followership and, you know, I had the benefit of going through some of the doctrine that they, they sent over. Um, critical yet at times overlooked as it relates mm. to its role in, in, in leadership and the dynamic of leadership. Um, what should leaders or how should leaders really foster a culture that values proactive fellowship? Is this, is the specific or stringent guidelines or advice uh, to drive a higher sense of fellowship? Well, I think it's the first, firstly, to understand what fellowship is and what, what it isn't. And when you say leaders, I think it's a really good place to start because the reality is known as um, uh, Professor Julian, whose name escapes me from York University now, says uh, no one is a pure leader or pure follower. The reality is we are both and, and we migrate between these roles and their roles, not positions, you know, re- depending on the context of the situation. You know, I go back to my time as a young platoon commander standing in that room and actually for the first few weeks and, and months, I was in a, as a follower far more than I was a leader because I leaned on the experience of those around me. But even fast forward 20 years as a commanding officer, you know, almost daily I'd be following others, even if I was the more senior person in the room, again, because the skills, knowledge, experience, um, 
uh, dictated that other people were were better. They may have been more junior to me in, in terms of you know the chain of command, but they were uh, far better positioned to 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 be the leader and and, uh, and influence others, and therefore, and, and literally within within a particular moment or a particular meeting or context, you can you can. It, it, it revolved between that those two roles, leaders and followers. So I think <clears throat> I think critical for any anyone that self-identifies as a leader. Yes, that's fine, um, but also appreciate that you are uh, a follower and have the humility to know when to uh, to move between those two roles. Um, I think that's first and foremost. But also the reality is that you know, particularly if we're looking from a more traditional perspective, um, you know, the m- most most people are followers most of the time. And the reality is that in any business, any team, any organization, and uh, you know, most of the work is done by those who are being influenced by leaders. And therefore, the majority is the followers. You know, most of the output, almost if you think that you know, mm-hmm. leaders are the catalyst for change or action, but the effect of that, mm-hmm. the actual action itself is often delivered by those that are, are are being led and therefore the followers. So I think it's, it's, it's fundamental that we understand what good followership looks like. And, 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 and to the point it's, it's, I think it's about having that conversation. What, what does good lead, sorry, what does good followership? Everyone looks at what good leadership looks like in an organization, but what does good followership looks look like? Mm-hmm. It means being proactive. It means being disciplined. It means, means supporting those around you. It means taking responsibility. It means challenging where necessary. Uh, it means it means delivering the best performance you can be. Understanding in our sort of military language of the commander's intent. You know what 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 the intent of the output of your of your of your project is, or or your you know what the objective of the team is, and then doing everything in your power, within your skills, knowledge, experience, etc., to, to 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 deliver that. It's about you know looking out for others, not looking out for yourself. You know that's all what good uh, uh, followership is all about it's not blindly following it's not you know criticizing behind people's back it's not it's not uh, you know sticking your thumb wherever and um you know just mm-hmm. blindly following on or um it's not being different you know, all these sort of at, uh, characteristics you see in many organizations military or otherwise that that really provide really un- ensure underperformance and actually can lead to some pretty um, unsavoury uh, cultures. So how do we? Mm-hmm. So and is that symbiotic relationship between between the leaders and the followers? Um, and again, those roles and positions can change, but it but it's about that that partnership. It genuinely is a partnership. And you you'll have experienced it yourself, Luke. And I often say to people, you know, don't worry about what the description is. Think of that. Sorry, the, the definition. Think about uh, you know. Think of a time when you were a part of a team, any team at school, or, you know, in um, mm-hmm. in the work environment, and when that team is is working in unison, you know, you, it's it's visceral. There's energy there when you're all working together. You understand exactly what you're trying to achieve, and uh, and you're all working towards that end state, and you're looking out for each other. And as I say, that, that you know, there's a visceral energy there, and and in those moments, those fleeting moments of flow, however you want to call it, um, uh, you know, it, that. It, that that symbiotic relationship, that partnership between two, um, is 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 working most effectively, and 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 that's what it's all that's what it's all about. And it's and and it's I think it's a privilege to be in a in a, a an effective followership position um, when you when you when you're mm-hmm. digging out for your for your team and your mates and um, and uh, yeah, it's um, but but I think it starts with understanding what does what does good followership look like in our organisation and and then and the making conscious because I think that's a beauty I think where the army is at the moment because they've got again an institutional position they've got a, a an understanding they can then consciously develop it 
um, in the same way as, as, mm-hmm. as leadership. They've defined what it is that you can actually then consciously develop people rather than doing it by default. Um, and of course, good leadership develops good followership. But if you can, if you can um, understand that there needs to be a conscious effort to train and develop and educate people in this, then um, then we'll all be, you know, we'll, we'll all be better. Yeah, with the research that you've done, does one have a natural inclination uh, to find themselves wanting to be a follower or a leader? Is there any kind of natural inclination there? I think it all depends on the person. Some people maybe sort of lack. It depends on the the, the person, but also the context. There's, there'll be some situations you'll you'll go into, and you're completely new to that environment, and you you haven't got the knowledge or skills to really feel like you contribute. So you naturally fall into a, a followership role because there are other people around you that mm-hmm. you know that have greater uh, um, uh, experience or, or, or authority, if you like, to and credibility to to to, to be the leader. So you naturally fall in, even if you're confident uh, person you're a leader in one aspect of your life you, mm-hmm. you come into another and, and you may be you, you may be different um you know you, you may be the the, the you, an executive at, uh, in the boardroom at work and then you go go to the golf club and you you know you're the worst player there so you know you, you, you whenever we go into different environments you you, you naturally that you'll um You'll you'll sense where where you 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 fit in terms of leadership or followership role, and I guess there's an element of people's personality as well. Um, some people are more inclined to to push themselves forward and and seek out the leadership roles um, because they enjoy that, mm-hmm. and others are, are more than happy to, uh, to 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 follow. But both both can be uh, developed absolutely, and both must must be developed if we're talking about you know delivering high performance. They're both critical. When I think about that question, um, followership is naturally where I fall. I love the sense, and, and I feel a stronger sense of camaraderie um, mm-hmm. and and team feel and that team bond when I've been mm-hmm. part of something following on a leader and of course the leader that I followed I've got to have respect you know I've, I've got Definitely. to have trust in, in that person's Definitely. ability to lead but the the sweet spot for me is when I've been in, in a followership position while still holding some some degree of of authority myself whether it being in the military or, or being a civilian capacity and then my, my second question is I think I think the military, um, I think it's sweet spot and it's trump card, uh, probably a bad analogy in this current day and age, but um, (laughs) the followership it can create, um, I think is... can't be rivaled in, in any real setup across, across the globe. Um, it seems like that followership is created by the sacrifice. And if I think about the military, soldiers make um, mm. in order um, to be in a position where the chain of command is as effective as it has. And, it, and for that to work, then soldiers give up a lot of uh, their rights, um, mm. as do civilians when they join a corporation when you sign up to the the terms and conditions and the values yeah, and standards yeah. of that of that organization the military has something pretty significant in fact it's given up some of its human rights for for the greater cause so with that dynamic one imagines that followership is already on a pedestal and it's already been going to be a significant part of the structure within the military. How do, how do we transfer that to the boardroom and corporate entities when um we don't have the luxury, you know, to, to take people's rights or we don't have the luxury to um, hardwire them a particular way as it relates to how they think and feel. How do we get that, that level of followership or how do we get the best version of, of followership? 
Yeah, it's a really, really good question, actually. I'm doing some work at the moment, uh, putting a paper together to, to look at pretty much this is why people follow. And I guess that gets to the heart of your answer, um, you know, and therefore, how can you create the right environment for people to follow? And I think there's various aspects. There's there's power dynamics, and I don't want to go too much into into this, but not power in the sense of authority and um, uh, you know ego driven power. But I'm I'm talking about you know the the, the power of people's legitimacy. I, I, I talk about it very briefly in the book. Um, a couple of uh, academics, French and Raven, in 1959, talked about the five bases of social power: legitimate, uh, coercive, uh, uh, um, re- reward, expert, and uh, and and reference. And understanding what power means and and how and people's mm-hmm. perception of, of, of that, I think, is really important. So, I, I, I use two of those by way of example. You know, if you're talking about legitimate power, that is my perception of 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 the the, the position that you're in. That that is a legitimate position, the legitimate position of authority. And you are, in my eyes, the credible person to be sat there. You know, have you got the right people in the, in your leadership positions that are respected within your organisation? Another is expert power. You know. I, I defer to you because you are you are the expert in the room, as we were speaking about earlier. So I think understanding power dynamics is, is is really really important, and and how you hold people to account, and how you reward people. There's there's lots lots to do uh, there, and the, the, the other element you've already spoken about is is trust. I mean, it's fundamental. If we're talking about this in social relation, but how do you build trust with people? You you build trust with people by demonstrating mm-hmm. you're good at your job, being professional, um, uh, you're compassionate, that you care for them, um, that you have the uh, humility to admit when you you're you're wrong um uh, to listen to others you know anyone of any leader of any uh, any position within an organization can demonstrate those those attributes you've got to build trust with your people um if you mm-hmm. don't have that then there is no leadership there's no followership bust but the, the 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 other one um the other, the other two that i think companies are realizing businesses are realizing more and more and the army is very very good at it or the military is very good at it to your point one is purpose there's a clearly defined purpose of why we exist yes. we exist yeah. to defend our nation our national interest and 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 to your point of you know that contract of unlimited liability, the legal rights and duty in extreme is to to sacrifice uh, one's own life or indeed take take that mm-hmm. of another. And that is, you know, that puts significant pressure on decision makers at all levels of the organisation. And we need to prepare them; they need to be well led. Um, but having that clear purpose, which galvanises people, um, and that's why people love being on operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, you know, yeah. I've been re- reading, dare I say it, but I've also been reading a book, um, rereading it this afternoon, actually, for another bit of work uh, called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. And he, and he talks in there about how uh, crises and catastrophes bring people together and bring the best out of people. And you saw this in COVID. People had a clear purpose. You know, we're joined together. We had this 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 feeling of solidarity as, an, as a nation or indeed a, um, a global community because we had this single purpose we had to overcome. And, you know, there's lots of stuff that went wrong and you know, so that's well versed at the moment. But, you know, we have a sense of t- togetherness and, and, and selflessness that, um, you know, as soon as that, that crisis was over, that sort of dissipated. There's many, many examples of that history which brings out the best in people because it got a clear purpose, it galvanizes. And the other is that sense of belonging. And you talked about uh, the regimental system, you know. The, the, the sense of pride um, and uh, the belonging, togetherness, esprit de corps, um, again, that shared purpose, that identity, that shared identity that comes with, in our case, principally seen through the regimental system, but obviously we have multiple identities. Um, you know, it's extremely powerful. People literally put their lives on the line because that is what's expected them as a paratrooper or, you know, mm-hmm. as a cameraman or whatever it may be. Um, 
and and and, uh, and again, that's drawing on your history, drawing on the standards that, ex- that and, and the values that you you espouse as, as an organization. You know, what does it mean to be part of your business, your company? What does it mean to belong? And if you mm-hmm. can generate that, I mean, that's all powerful. You know, as I say, for, for us, you know yourself well, Luke. You know, people will literally put their lives on the line, and it is about others. It's it's not about yourself. It's that it's that it's that. Um, sense of, of it's an intrinsic human human need to belong and in this uh, without getting mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. too deep into this but you know particularly us in the west um you know we live in an increasingly individualistic society i think a lot of the problems that we we suffer from at the moment um as, as societies is because we, we are we are driven by individual needs and desires when actually you know human evolution has, 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 has thrived working together you know being you know those social bonds we th- we, we 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 thrive for we, we you know we 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 we're desperately in need of it and um and i think organizations like the military are very very good at, at providing that that belonging and that shared identity and that tribe and uh and, and if that can be replicated in, in the corporate world as it as it definitely is in many in many organizations then um mm-hmm. then yeah you're on to a winner yeah they're leading to a special culture and you know, something from, from my time in the past and, and where I am currently now, um, the ethical and the moral side um, start to play in, um, be it actually and then the theoretical side of some of the research I've done. And, um, you know, the, the, the kind of next question I've got is, is really founded upon a statement. Um, and, and I'm sure you're familiar, an East Indian philosopher, uh, Jiddu mm-hmm. Krishnamurti, um, yeah. said that it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to pro- a profoundly sick society. Uh, and, and in leadership, sometimes what is popular is not always right, and what's right is not mm-hmm. always popular. Um, can you speak of a time where you've had to stand on on the side of what is morally right, even when it went against the grain or the societal norms or was unpopular within the organization. Um, and, and then on a broader scale, how do you navigate those challenges? Um, there's something I've personally uh, found myself stumbling into uh, without necessarily having the right tools and, and you know, the right preparation. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so do you have an instance where you've really been challenged um, and, and your, your guiding principles, your morals have, have, have driven the outcome? Yeah, it's a great question. I have to uh, think hard. I, I think for any leader, you know, this is where leadership comes to its fore, isn't it? When you're making those difficult decisions, when you're operating in the grey space, the grey area, and um, you know, there's some, there's certain, many circumstances you find ourselves in where something is either right or fundamentally wrong. It's black and white. It's easy, but actually, it's the grey space in the middle where the difficult bit is, and where you have to apply judgment. And I say that's what the art of leadership is all about: is about balance and judgment. That's ultimately what people are paying you for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, uh, yeah um, I, I guess I, 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 I don't know. If this gets to, to 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 your point, but let me think. So, I, I remember one of my very similar instances as a both a commanding officer and a, a and a company commander. When I had so company commander, I had a lance corporal in front of me. He was a Royal Marine. Um, and he was he was an exceptional soldier. He was a really good guy. He was one of he was one of my best. He's on the verge of promotion. He was going places, future star. And bottom line is, he got done for drink driving. And um, mm-hmm. and he was in front of me for a sort of disciplinary action. And 
And it was sort of borderline. There's lots of mitigating circumstances, but bottom line, he was just over, uh, over. I think he was driving to the garage at five in the morning to get, to get some cigarettes or something. And he was a couple of units over, whatever it was. Um, but the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the clear line in policy, I think legal advice was he needs to get demoted to, to, you know, private, which is significant for, for him, you know, married man. I think he had a child, mm-hmm. if I remember rightly. Yeah, he's going to be in a very different financial position. You know, you know big setback in his career for one moment of mm-hmm. uh, uh, stupidity, really. And, um, mm-hmm. and I wrangled over this for a while, and I sought counsel of 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 you know my you know people around me, people I trusted, my trusted advisors, I call them, and uh, and I ended up demoting him, and um, it was really really difficult, and. He ended up leaving the military mm-hmm. in the end um, because he felt he couldn't regain his career. Uh, he understood and accepted mm-hmm. it, but I just—it was one of those moments of, you know, am I doing the right thing here? <laughs> am I? It's, it's a significant hit, yeah. hit on him, but am I doing the right thing? Um, but I, but I thought to myself, this isn't just about him. This is about the standard set for the organisation, and if I let him off. Then what's going to happen to the next person that comes along? All right, they may be you know one of our least performing soldiers and always in trouble. But what's and there's always mitigating circumstances. But you know how how do I you know how do I stand there and say I can do it for one and I can't do it for for the other? And I had a very similar situation as yeah. a as a commanding officer, um, a lance corporal, a corporal in front of me, similar circumstances, and um, I took the same decision. Uh, one again who ended up leaving the army, um, and the other one who soldiered on with you know and was promoted very quickly and is a remarkable individual but both of those were shining stars and i found those decisions really really difficult um because they were moments of stupidity and out of character for these really good people um but mm-hmm. for me it was about well these are the standards we set and we've got to we've got to live by them um um otherwise where do where do we how do we define the boundaries and i think i think the second part of your question is you know how do we how do we deal with these sort of situations? And I think it's, um, I think first of all, it's about understanding one what are the values of the organisations of the ethics, you know, professional ethics, whatever you know, what what are the expected standards mm-hmm. and codes of conduct of the organisation, but also where do you stand? Where are your morals and your values? Um, where are your boundaries? And and being really clear on those. Um, because if you don't really understand those, then how are you going to make those difficult decisions? And don't get me wrong, there's plenty of times when I yeah. have not followed my values and morals, and I've known at the time, and there's you know, hairs on your back like, this is not the right thing to do. I've gone ahead with it, and I've regretted it afterwards. There's plenty of those um, where I haven't had the moral courage, um, unfortunately. But, um, uh, you know... Th- th- so it's it's about understanding where you are at the moment. Then it's about clearly understanding the context of the situation and seeking counsel. I think you know I often use the experience of those around me, not necessarily to be persuaded by them, but to to be informed and get a, a opinion and perspective because everyone will have, you know have their views on it. Um, but then I think it's just about holding the line and um, and knowing what is right and wrong. That's what ultimately here we're talking about here. Morals and ethics is about yeah. you know. D- doing what you know is right on a difficult day, whether someone's looking, whether they're not looking, however the phrase goes. And um, and, and, and why does this matter? Uh, sorry, the last thing I'd say, or the other thing I'd say is once you've made a decision, is about communicating it to people. Because there's one thing in the decision itself mm-hmm. and the immediate impact of that, but it's, it, it's communicating to others, why did you make that decision? So they, are, they understand your thinking. They may not agree with it, 
you say, this is why, this is my, this mm-hmm. is, this is my line. These are my boundaries. This individual in this instance cross over those lines. And that's why, you know, I took the action that, that I did. Yeah. Again, people don't need to agree with you, but I think that communication is, is, is absolutely, um, is absolutely critical. And you may, and you welcome challenge, you know, people can challenge you on that, but, um, but I think it's been, uh, being true to yourself at the, uh, at the end of the day. And, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, why does this all matter? It matters because, um, when you're in the arena and you're up against it and, uh, you know, for us, that's on the battlefield when people are pushed to their physical, mental, psychological, emotional, uh, uh, you know, t- to the ends of all of those, mm-hmm. you need to, people to react instinctively and hence, you know, go back to the title of the book, the habits of excellence. It needs to be a habit. It needs to be intuitive and instinctive. Mm-hmm. And if you take the easy decisions in our language, in peacetime, in barracks, you, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be able to make the hard decisions when it matters most on the battlefield. And I'd say that in corporate life as well. And hence, why you need to build up these habits. If you if you let people off the hook and 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 don't follow your values and your morals and and your your ethical boundaries, and you let stuff go, you let the small stuff go. One, you are setting your boundaries. Right, which may not be the ones mm-hmm. you actually want to set, and 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 poor cultures and behaviours set in until it's too late. And when it matters most, then you look around and uh, people um, are behaving not in the way you want to. And if you look at all, you know, many of the, you know, significant corporate failings and 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 wider, you look in this country, some some elements of the NHS, the police, the military as well, elite sport, business, financial um, meltdown in two thousand eight, nine, um, Citibank recently. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not Citibank, um, uh, Credit Suisse. At, at many, many examples, a lot of those failures have been born of, uh, of, of of poor cultures, and ultimately, that's people overstepping ethical and moral boundaries. Sorry, long mm-hmm, answer, but mm-hmm. good question. Um, I, I really appreciate it. I was there's a couple of there's a couple of moments there, which solidified that self analysis piece. Um, I think mm. um, was pretty significant. And then I don't know if you came across a gentleman in your time in the military, but um, he was one of the standout leaders for me that probably flicked a switch to taking and looking at leadership as, as its own entity. Prior to that, mm-hmm. going through the ranks, uh, an NCO, senior, senior NCO, it was it was just on the back end of performing well in the previous rank. <laughs> you know, there was no thought <laughs> yeah, going yeah. into what I was doing. Um, but there was uh, my old commanding officer, uh, Tim Himes, Timothy Himes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. About. yeah, great guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> He had a, such a significant impact on me and, and really changed the makeup of, of who I was and how I thought about things. Um, and he epitomized more courage doing, and mm. in this most simplistic of natures, doing the right thing and not the easy thing. Um, and, and I think that changed the delta from me being good soldier, a good field soldier, a good field mm-hmm. leader, um, and a bit of a pain in the ass in the barracks <laughs> to uh, also a barracks leader and a field leader. Cause I just, I didn't like barracks. <laughs> I that just yeah, not, wasn't yeah. my cup of tea. Um, but the significance is, as you just alluded to and building the muscle memory for discipline in these mm-hmm. areas, um, obviously played, plays a significant part as to what happens out on, on the field and, and in theaters. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, um, that chap and, and you know, what, what he helped me with, but, um, yeah, so, some really significant stuff again. Thanks for sharing. And I can't help but think, um, Lieutenant Colonel, when you leave, when you left, is that right? 
Yes, yeah, that's right, Luke, yeah. I would imagine the army had a pretty significant appetite to keep you on. Um, and I imagine that was a pretty difficult decision to, to make in leaving. How did that come about? That sounds like a, a crossroads and a half. Yeah, it was. I think we all hit natural crossroads in various parts of our life, didn't, didn't we? And um, and so I was post uh, battalion command, unit command, and, uh, and and as I say, last two years at the Centre Army Leadership, which was probably the best job I did outside of command. I loved it. Um, and it was a natural decision point because I was due promotion to uh, to, to, to colonel, and uh, but my children were at the age where they were about to go into senior school, and ultimately they needed mm-hmm. stability, and it was. Um, you know, it was either going down the boarding school route, as many people do within the military and other other organisations, where you have to have that stability, or um, or come out and uh, settle the family and, and do something else. Uh, and it was a close run thing because yeah. I left an organisation that I loved, respected. I left on a high, um, but actually felt you know it was time for the family to take uh, centre stage. And uh, I, I, although you know I, I do miss the military, I I certainly now know that I made the right decision. And, uh, and it's interesting, I, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I left, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, life, life is about taking risks, risks and opportunities, seeking opportunities, isn't it? And going for it. And, and uh, yeah, no regrets, no regrets at all. Absolutely. Um, which, which kind which, um, takes us on to frontier leadership, um, which is where we sit now. Um, again, your thought uh, behind that and what's your vision for, for, for frontier? Um, I don't have any wild strategic uh, visions and plans, but I think in, in simple terms, it's about um, taking my experience of you know leadership and followership, being led and uh, and leading at the heart of what I consider you know some of the world's highest performing organisations, and 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 translating that experience fused with clearly experience and, and thinking thought leadership from from many other uh, people from different sectors but translating that um in in into supporting individual teams and organizations perform better and be better ultimately in in simple terms I, it sounds like sort of cliche language now but but but, but it's just taking that experience and, and and trying to add value to other people um um and 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 i love it yeah but so a year into the business now and uh, you know, peaks and troughs as new businesses always are, uh, feast and fallow. But, but but really enjoy it, and 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 built on sort of three aspects of uh, talks and workshops. You know, bringing that experience into 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 the business world and translating that into other people's context and having those conversations. Uh, writing, of course, which we've spoken about, and uh, and the, mm-hmm. and the last element is coaching, which I'm I'm just going through a course with Mayla Campbell, sort of uh, globally recognised coaching uh, organisation that's um, helping me sort of bring translate some of that experience and uh, and support others, particularly senior leaders and executives in uh, in a coaching capacity, because it goes back to your point, Luke, about self awareness. That's where it all starts, and I think I, I mm-hmm. actually went through coaching executive coach when I um I, I left the military. It was it was such a, 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 an, an important um, experience for me, and it just opened my eyes up to to, to think differently and um, challenge me, raise my awareness. And it goes back to your point: if 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 leaders are on in these senior positions and under a lot of pressure and um, having to make mm-hmm. some significant decisions, how do they balance all that and uh, and and look beyond uh, the everyday? And I think coaching is f- fundamental to to enable that. So I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to doing more of that. 
I'm sure we'll see far more of Frontier. I'm hoping I see another piece of work uh, that I can get my hands on uh, should, should that go well um, into the new year. But, but Langley, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on, sharing with our listeners some, some um, actionable items as it relates to driving some of the, some of the positive traits around leadership, uh, followership, and I'm looking forward to next time. Thanks very much, Luke. Appreciate the opportunity. Great to chat to you. And uh, yeah, always uh, open for opportunities over the pond. I'll see you there soon. See you there. Take care, Luke. Bye.